I want to invite you to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. As you know, we are uh, we began our study through the book of Acts. And I'll confess to you, I've preached from the book of Acts before, but I've never preached through the book of Acts before. And there's a, a distinct difference between the two. And I'm personally just thrilled and excited to be able to walk through this incredible book um, with you guys and just trust that that as a church, we would resonate with what God is seeking to teach us through um, this wonderful book that God has breathed out through the pen of Luke. And Steve Anderson is going to come and he's going to read our text for this morning. Luke, or sorry, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Let's stand again. Acts 1, 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, Lord, we ask for your help as we allow your word, Lord, to minister to us, to strengthen us both individually and corporately. And Lord, um, I ask just as your messenger that what I say, Lord, will be an accurate reflection, Lord, of what you are breathing out, what you're seeking to communicate to to your people. So, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And, Lord, what we are not, would you make us? And uh, Lord, may this time, uh, Lord, just be a means by which you are growing your people to be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. You're growing this church to be what you've called it out to be, and that you're challenging those, Lord, who do not know you about the wonder and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The kingdom. When Jesus appears to the disciples for 40 days, he spoke to them about the kingdom. And I find Graham Goldsworthy's definition of the kingdom helpful. This is what he says. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And just think about that definition. God's people, those who have embraced Christ as their Lord and Savior. In God's place. Well, right now, this is his church. This is his place. Under God's rule. Who is our Lord? Jesus is our Lord. And yet we find the theme of the kingdom present, but growing and developing in both Luke and Acts. And what we find is that the kingdom is already present with them, but not yet fully realized. But everything is moving in that direction. It is the momentum of those texts. And to this day, it is the reality as well as the tension of the world in which we live. We long for the kingdom to be fully realized. We recognize that because we are God's church, because he is our Lord and Savior, that he has placed us in this world, and he's given us the blessing of the church. But we still long for that kingdom when he's going to come and he's going to rule and reign on this earth with his people forever. Now, friends, Luke's gospel is full of statements about the kingdom of God. In fact, it's repeated 48 times, and of those 48 times, 36 of them come from the very words 
of Jesus. And I'm not going to give them all to you, but just highlighting a few. In Luke 4, 43, Jesus comes and he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. In Luke 6, 20, he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. In Luke 7, 28, I tell you, among these born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Here's one I know you you probably have heard before. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Or how about this one, Luke eleven two? When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Or Luke eighteen sixteen. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Or Luke twenty two eighteen. For I tell you, from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So friends, Luke is full of kingdom of God language. And then as we move into the book of Acts, which Luke is writing now as the sequel, it begins in verse 3 where Jesus is speaking to the disciples about the kingdom of God. And it continues in the question that we're going to look at today, where the the disciples or the apostles ask Jesus in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of God? To Israel. In Acts 8, verse 12, we see it used to describe the content of Philip's preaching. It says there, he preached good news about the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 22, we find the Apostle Paul saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when Paul went reasoning in the synagogues, chapter 19, verse 8, It says this, he's reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Again, in Acts 20, 25 and Acts 28, 23, it's all the content of the preached word by Paul. And finally, in Acts 28 and verse 31, Luke ends his book with the following words. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, talking about Paul, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So at the beginning of the book of Acts and at the end of the book of Acts, we have this emphasis on the preaching, the proclamation, the centrality, the essential reality of the kingdom of God. So this is both in Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts. Now, we could rightly say that the kingdom of God comes while Jesus continues his ministry from heaven with the preaching of the apostles by his word in the power of the Holy Spirit. You might even say that this is the melodic line of the book of Acts. This is what's happening over and over and over again in the book of Acts. The apostles are going out and they are the ministers of Christ who is seated in heaven, but carrying out the ministry and the word of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to various peoples in various places. And so it's no wonder that at the beginning of this this sequel, this book of Acts, that it is the subject of the kingdom of God that is at the center stage. And it will be helpful for us to see our text today, Acts 1, 6 through 11, that it is driven by this theme. And here's what we're going to see. There is a kingdom question that the disciples are going to ask. It's followed by a kingdom answer that Jesus gives. And essentially what we're going to see is that answer is going to give birth to a kingdom mission. And so this morning, I would like for us to consider this proposition, rethinking the mission of God's kingdom, rethinking the mission of God's kingdom. We all come to the text of God's word with preconceived ideas, don't we? And we're going to find out that's what the apostles do here. By the way, when he was apostles, disciples, we're talking about the same group of people here, right? 
And we need to rethink our assumptions, rethink our understandings, and allow the text of God's word, allow Christ to be able to fashion and shape our understanding of what that mission is in God's kingdom. So let's begin here with a kingdom question. And each of these uh, each of these main points is going to have a key word that we're, I'm just going to highlight to help us think through what's going on. Now, just kind of digging into the text here, it would appear that from verse 12, that Jesus and the apostles are gathered together on the Mount of Olives. And it would have been a beautiful location to gather, a popular location where Jesus would gather with his disciples. It overlooked the city, it overlooked the Temple Mount. Maybe some of you have been there before and you just, the, the, the kind of the visible sight and the, the, the scenes of the city are just absolutely incredible from there. And now they've, they've gathered with Jesus and Jesus has already said that he would be leaving. The apostles start thinking, well, we, we have a question here. And it says in verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? We know you're leaving, so is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, friends, first of all, understand this is a good question. In one sense, this is a good question. They, they assuredly believe now that Jesus is king. I just flash back a little bit back to the Gospels. What's, what's one of the things that the, 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 the Romans did to mock Jesus as he hung on the cross? Here is the king of the Jews. And without realizing what they were saying as they put that on top of the cross, they were actually declaring the truth. And of course, as Jesus met with the disciples at the end of, of, of the book of Luke, we find this on the road to Emmaus, Jesus explaining himself from the Old Testament. And then as he gathered with the disciples after that, he's explaining how he is the, the, the Messiah, the one prophesied in the Old Testament. He is this king of this kingdom. They understand that. But it's clear that they are confused about the specifics of the kingdom. They're not confused about the king, they're confused about the kingdom. Martin Luther, understanding this, said this about their question. There are as many errors in this question as words. <laughs> it's a good question, but it's also full of problems, right? So it's in one another sense, it's a bad question. And it's filled with assumptions that they are bringing or that spill over from their Jewish upbringing. And they're looking to Jesus to confirm what they are convinced is what's supposed to happen when the kingdom comes. So the key word here is confusion. These apostles, these disciples are confused in their question. The question reveals their confusion about the kingdom and the specifics of the kingdom. Now it says here this question Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? So this idea of restore means to, to give back. You might rightly put it this way. Jesus, if you're leaving, are you, going to, are you giving the kingdom back to Israel? Again, clearly they're still conditioned by this Jewish expectation of a national kingdom to be set up on earth. But friends, this, this goes back to this Old Testament understanding of God who raised up a king who did rule his kingdom. And let's just walk a little bit back through the story and the history of Israel here as a nation. If you remember how God formed the nation of Israel, the sons of Jacob find themselves in Egypt because of Joseph and, and God's providence in bringing him there. He's faithful he helps the, the, the people in, in, in Egypt because he, he's able to interpret the dreams and the famine. And he's all part of this leadership to make sure that, that everyone is satisfied with food. As a result of his good work there, Pharaoh gives Israel the land of Goshen to live in. And the problem is they thrive. They multiply. You remember that from the book of Exodus. And yet, after some time, there rose up a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And he turns against Israel because they are so many. And he begins to oppress them, making them slaves. But God delivers Israel from Egypt by the hand of Moses, 
who leads them across the Red Sea into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, God reveals his law and the bedrock for the nation of Israel was formed. These people become now this nation. And Israel then ultimately would enter into the promised land, but they failed to do what God said they should do to drive the people out. In fact, they were they began intermarrying with the people. They began to worship their gods. And so what we find then at the end of the book of Judges, which is what J.D. preached on a couple of weeks ago, we find the, the expression of their dire circumstances. Judges 21, 25, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, we, we might know that statement. We might know that verse, but I, I want you to begin to Ponder what that might look like. That's utter chaos, friends. It's the platform for anarchy. And God's people were longing for a king. And God already had a plan in motion to raise up a king, a man after his own heart. And although Israel could not wait for him to raise up his king. They chose one for themselves. It was like the the nations around them in the person of Saul. He was a failed king, but God was still raising up David to rule them and then ultimately to establish his kingdom in Israel. We had the king, we had the kingdom, and they might want to say even the zenith of that era was when Solomon is sitting on the throne. I mean, all the nations around knew of Solomon. These were the glory days for Israel. These were the good old days. And so when the apostles are asking this question, Lord, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? They are thinking about those glory days. They are literally asking when God will make Israel great again. Jesus, if you're leaving us, is this now the time when Israel's kingdom is restored? And the disciples' questions reveal a fairly specific set of assumptions and expectations that the Messiah would be a political ruler who would come and overthrow Rome and that the kingdom would be restored to Israel. Friends, there's confusion going on here. Now, friends, we might be tempted to shake our heads at the seemingly ignorant assumptions of these now apostles But don't we do the same? Don't we bring thinking and attitudes and assumptions from our past, uh, our, our past lives into our understanding of what God's word says? Let me give you a few examples. And you may not even be settled on these. So this will cause you to think. Isn't that what drives so many Christians to view their walk with Christ as a matter of legalistically keeping rules rather than resting in the finished work of God's grace? Because they may have come from like Catholicism, where it's this legalistic keeping of rules, as opposed to saying, Christ has done it all. I don't have to do these things to earn my salvation. I do these things because I'm saved. Or isn't that what we are so often attracted to the view that we, we all have a free will? Because we feel we have to make choice. It's good, especially if you don't like the government. We got a free will. But don't we realize that scripture actually identifies that what you might call free will is actually being in bondage to sin? We're all in bondage to sin unless Christ is our Lord and Savior. Isn't that why we hold on to the idea that man is essentially good when scripture teaches that man without God is thoroughly tainted by sin in all he does? See, we can bring ideas from our past lives into our Christian walk that seems to betray and challenge the mission that God has called us to and how we are to go about that mission. And so on so many levels, it is the teaching of Christ that changes those thoughts and attitudes and assumptions, and our hearts are washed by the water of the word to be conformed to the thinking of the master. What shouts at us as a stubborn ignorance is laid before us, it mirrors back to us the reality that we are so very often guilty of the very same thing. 
What assumptions, what kind of thinkings are you bringing in to your idea of what it means to be the church or even what it means to be a Christian? That now Christ wants to correct. The disciples, the apostles are confused. There was a kingdom question. Now we come, secondly, to a kingdom answer. The key word that goes with Christ's answer is correction. Jesus corrects the apostles' confusion, their faulty understanding of the kingdom. And we can see that Jesus wants to correct their thinking um, really in, in three areas of confusion about the kingdom, the nature, the extent, and the timing. So we're going to walk through those together. They're confused about the nature of the kingdom. What the disciples and all God-fearing Jews misunderstood about the kingdom is that the kingdom was not a political or earthly kingdom. If the Messiah would come, what they would think is he's coming to overthrow the oppression that they're experiencing and return Israel to the the primary and central nation in that region. That Israel would once again be the place where kings from countries near and far would come to pay tribute because Israel would be at the center of it all. Now what we see and what Jesus has been teaching in the Gospels is that the kingdom is uniquely spiritual and heavenly. Now Luke chapter 17, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, when will the kingdom come? And here is this response. This is verses 20 and 21 of Luke 17. He says, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What in the world is he doing there? What Jesus is getting at is that the kingdom of God has already come. They are standing, even asking this question, in the very presence of the king, the ruler of this kingdom. So the kingdom is already with them, with Christ the king being present with them. They were waiting for a Messiah who would overthrow Rome. Jesus says, the king is already here, and the the kingdom has already started but it's a different kind of kingdom than you think it should be. And although Jesus had labored with the religious leaders as well as the disciples in the Gospels to teach them about the kingdom, what's clear is that they still held on to these assumptions, these expectations, these misunderstandings. And friends, we must ask ourselves a difficult question. Are we looking for the kingdom of God to come through the strength, the power, and the expansion of the United States of America or through the faithful preaching and witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I fear that we may find more comfort in thinking that as a great nation, although we are a wobbling nation right now, it would be that the U.S. is the means by which God will change the world. You look back at history, God has used different countries at different times to accomplish his purposes. It used to be that England was the center, so to speak, of where gospel ministry was going forward. And certainly there's been a shift as as the church, in a sense, moved to the United States and has been working hard to, to produce people that would go to other places. But we're wobbling, friends. I remember as a young pastor attending a missions conference and meeting a large number of national pastors, pastors from other countries, and hearing about the effective ministry of of Korean ministries, uh, the effect that those Korean ministries have had on their country, at least to some place in, in Latin America. And then also hearing how many missionaries were being sent out of Argentina to minister in the Middle East, places where Americans were not allowed to go. And I'm ashamed to admit it, but something in me was jealous. I mean, isn't the church in America, aren't we the ones that are supposed to be spreading the gospel throughout the world? 
Aren't other countries dependent on our ministry and our money and our materials? Could add in there and our choir robes. And although I was fully committed to and passionate about missions, I found that I was harboring a faulty belief that the American church was the center of the Christian world. And it felt strange to think that Christians from other countries who are being faithful, effective, and being used by God to spread the gospel in other places. And it was for me a life-changing moment, and by God's grace and mercy, God's used it to change my understanding, as well as my love for the church of God in every country, and to pray more eagerly for national pastors as they seek to carry out the ministry of the gospel. And looking back, it's, it's likely one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about the kind of relationships that we have in Bolivia and Ukraine where we can go in and we can train the national pastors to do the work of the ministry. Why? Because we want to use the gifts and the skills that God has given us, but when it comes down to it, it's, it's those guys who are on, on the front lines that are to do the work in, in their countries. But see, I had this faulty thinking, and, and my understanding of what God was doing was was misplaced. Friends, do you have a distorted view of the United States in that sense? Do you see the USA as the the present Christian epicenter from which true ministry and freedom is disseminated? Don't get me wrong. I'm not downing the country in which I live. I love this country. I'm a naturalized immigrant in this country. I was born in Israel, lived in Germany, but my mother was American. And we came to the States when I was 16. I love this place. I have no problem with people wanting to come into this country to get away from oppression, to find opportunity, and to make a life for themselves. That has historically been what America has been about. And anytime you leave the USA to another country and then you return home, you realize how good you have it. You really do. The safety, the security, the freedom, the opportunity. So I get it. I experience it. I'm truly thankful for all the blessings I have been given as a citizen of this country. And there's every reason for people to want to come here. But friends, we must see that the USA is not the heart of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God doesn't come about by armies and elections and protests and violence The kingdom of God comes as the word of God is proclaimed and people embrace the gospel and bow the knee to Christ. The kingdom of God is spiritual and heavenly, not earthly and political. It transcends the physical and the national. Friends, we need to see that. Why? When we are, when we're convinced of that reality, then we realize that what's happening in the political world What's happening with wars and rumors of wars? They're all happening, but that doesn't change the outflow of the kingdom of God and the word of God going places and churches being built and people being reconciled to him. And friends, that is why we must reignite our passion for the church universal, for the growth of the true church through the the faithful proclamation of the gospel and power through the word of God. And that is why we must reignite our passion for the church local. As we saw last week, one of the takeaways from Luke's introduction section is that Christ, it's Christ who is continuing his ministry through the Holy Spirit-empowered preaching of the Word of God. It's Christ who is at work. And Christ is continuing his work through us as a local church. The size of our church is insignificant. God is working his will through his local church. So this is the nature of the kingdom that they misunderstood. Jesus is seeking to correct it. Secondly, he wants to correct their faulty understanding of the extent of the kingdom. Because the the disciples had this fixed view of Israel's centrality. Now just think about this. If, If... If Jerusalem was the center of the kingdom, how would that fare for Judea and Samaria and the rest of the earth? 
How would it go over in Ephesus and Corinth and in Rome that the true heart of the kingdom was in Jerusalem? What you would have are people making pilgrimages to the most holy city. Hmm, haven't we had that in our history? The problem is, that's not God's plan. God never had a plan for Jerusalem on this earth at this time to be the center and the heart of his kingdom. So what seems to be an assumption on the part of the disciples is that the kingdom was a uniquely Jewish reality. They were thinking about a national kingdom, that of course the kingdom, of course, of course where else would it be? It has to be in Israel. But there doesn't seem to be any consideration on their part about the Gentiles. So Jesus corrects them and instructs them on the extent of the kingdom. What he has in mind is a universal kingdom. It isn't centered in Israel, but will extend to the end of the earth. You will be my witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is verse 8. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now we know this verse. We've heard this verse many times. And Jesus' words here will give us a really a threefold purpose that he wants us to see. First of all, these words, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth, they identify the regions or the territories to which the kingdom will reach. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. They're geographical regions into which the the apostles will travel. They will take the word of God. They will proclaim the word of God, and people will be saved. Churches will be formed. The gospel ministry will begin in Jerusalem, but it will go to the end of the earth. I I like uh, one commentator who kind of summarized uh, this list of, of places in this way. He says, the gospel is going to spread to people who are far away and unlike you. Jerusalem, these are those who are close to you and very much like you. So they're your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, A's and Giants fans. Judea, these are the people who are like you but live a little bit further away. Maybe those in San Jose or Vallejo. Samaria, those are, are people geographically a little further away from you but still close. But they're a little unlike you. And have hostility toward you. So people from Oregon, Nevada, Arizona, you know, those kinds of people. L.A., maybe. I don't know. And then there's the ends of the earth. Describes people who are unlike you and who live far away from you. Just think think of, you know, if we were talking about this maybe 100 years ago, we would have far less of a grasp of, of the nations around the world. Today, because of video and technology, we, we're brought face-to-face with a variety of cultures, aren't we? But we're not like a lot of people around this world. So there's this kind of this scope. So this, this, these, these, these identifications of territory, of regions, help us to know um, where the kingdom will reach. Secondly, they also articulate the flow or the structure of the book of Acts. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want you just to to note this. We find primarily ministry going on in Jerusalem in chapters 1 through 7. Again, in verse 4, the disciples were to wait for the promise of the Father. Where? In Jerusalem. Now turn to Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, because here we have the beginning of the Judea-Samaria section. And what we read there is, and Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. So we got this move from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria that comes by means of persecution. And of course, what we see is that persecution then is the vehicle that God uses to spread the gospel. So something negative is being used to accomplish God's providential plan. 
So that's chapters 8 through 12. And then the end of the earth would be chapter 13 through 28. In chapter 13, verse 1, we see ministry taking place in the city of Antioch. And from chapter 13, verse 1, all the way through the end of the book, where we find Paul ultimately in Rome. So he visits all of these different places, and he ends up in Rome, and Rome would become the epicenter from which the gospel would continue to go uh, out across all the earth, because Rome was the, the, the center of culture at that time. I mean, Rome was powerful. Rome was supreme, and from there, boom, it would continue to go. So we, we, we find here this, this unfolding, this, 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 this structure of the book of Acts laid out for us in this statement. But third, this, this, this distinction here between Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the ends of the earth is also a promise from the Old Testament that, that Jesus is connecting to. If you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, I want you to see this. This is what we find coming out of Isaiah. It says, it is too light a thing. The idea there is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the uh, preserve of Israel. Let me explain what's going on. He's saying, look, you want to restore Israel to its its, 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 its former glory. And what God is saying through Isaiah is, You're thinking too small. Continue on, see what it says. I will make you as a light for who? The nations. That my salvation may reach, what? To the end of the earth. (laughs) Now, notice what Paul says in chapter 13 of the book of Acts. He says, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And how did the Gentiles respond? And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the the word of the Lord. And as many of as were appointed to eternal life believed. So Jesus is here connecting what he's saying to the prophecy of Isaiah. This commission, this, uh, this, this mission that he has, the extent of this mission is to the end of the earth. And so when Jesus is saying to his disciples, your assumptions about the coming of the kingdom are too small. Don't think of Jerusalem only. Think of the king of the kingdom reigning to the end of the earth. You see, I, I, as I came into this text, I, I, I brought my own assumptions to this. And I, I never saw this text as being an answer to these confused disciples. But Jesus is not only giving them counsel here and correction, he's preparing them now uh, for something else. But there's another thing here. It's the timing of the kingdom. You've seen the nature of it, the extent of it, but now the timing of the kingdom. If you look back at the disciples' question, it reads this, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And how does Jesus immediately respond? His first words are, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, honestly, friends, it would be a good thing for the modern church to take these words to heart. We've all heard about pastors and people who have searched the scriptures to determine when the Lord was going to return, right? You remember Pat Robinson's claim that judgment would come on this world in 1982, ushering in Armageddon? Thankfully, I didn't know about it at the time because I was going to graduate from high school in 83. I mean, what, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Edgar Weisenhart, 88 Reasons Christ Was Going to Come in 1988. And of course, he didn't come. 
And then Harold Camping's prediction that Judgment Day would happen on May 21st, 2011. You guys probably all remember that, the signs that were here in Castro Valley. And you're kind of like, all right, are, are people buying into all this stuff? And people were. It was the talk. I sat under a pastor who made a prediction about the Lord's return. And when I gently took him to this passage in Matthew 24, verse 36, which talks about not knowing the day or the hour of his return, this is what he said. But it doesn't say anything about the month or the year. See, Christ here makes it clear, doesn't he? These are not things we should consume our hearts and minds with. Let me put a qualifier here. It's not saying that understanding the unfolding plan of God as far as when he's going to return, what we call eschatology. He's not saying you shouldn't think about that, but you shouldn't be consumed with trying to figure exactly when the Lord is going to come. It's not for you to know these things. That's what he says. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons. And those are words that are somewhat synonyms, just simply about an amount of time, a season of time. But third and more importantly, what he says here is that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, they are fixed by God's own authority. God knows what he's doing. He has his plan laid out. Let it go and leave it up to him. But we can't do that, can we? But he's saying, look, you're wasting all so much time being consumed about that. But then in verses 9 through 11, we're given these events of the ascension of Christ. And part of the reason we're giving them is to help the disciples, as well as us as readers, understand something about God's timing. See if you can catch us. And when he had said these things and they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Right? He's taken up. He, he, he's, he, he, he records this um, same thing at the end of Luke's, of his gospel. And I want you to pay close attention to the two men that are standing in white robes. Two men standing in white robes, typically going to be angels. Okay, These men as angels, they're speaking a message from God. And by the way, if an angel comes speaking a message, you probably want to listen. And you probably want to pay attention. You probably want to remember what they're saying. And the angels reveal something about the timing that will be an anchor for them for their mission. Again, now let's listen. Verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So here, I mean, here's, here's the, the basic takeaway. Jesus is going. They already know that. He's already said that. And now you've seen him go, you've experienced it, but he will be returning. He's going, but he will be returning. Again, you don't know necessarily the timing of it, but you have the confidence and the assurance that he will be returning. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, you have this wonderful picture of the king returning in clouds and trumpets. In other words, what we learn about the timing of the kingdom is, number one, the Lord will return in the same way that he left. Secondly, the Lord will return according to the Father's timetable, not ours. Third, we must stop wasting time trying to determine when the Lord will return and instead get about doing what God has called us to do. So we've considered a kingdom question where the disciples are confused. We've considered a kingdom answer where Jesus corrects their confusion by showing the disciples the nature, the extent, and the timing of the kingdom. And now we want to revisit verses 7 and 8 and to consider the kingdom mission that he's calling his apostles to. So we want to go back to verse 8. I want you to take notice of the specific instructions Jesus gives the apostles for their mission, and the key word here is commission. They are being commissioned to do something. Matthew 
at the end of his gospel, gives us what we call the Great Commission, right? And this is what he says. This is Jesus speaking. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, Luke, in his record, doesn't give that commission, but he gives what we might call a kingdom commission. And that's found in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So there's two aspects, two parts to this commission. Number one, you will receive power. The promise recalls what Luke has already said in his gospel, chapter 24, 49, where he says, until you are clothed with power from on high. And then Acts chapter 1, we find uh, he says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So you have this, this, this wonderful power that comes from the Holy Spirit that enables you to take the gospel and to proclaim it in ways where it's going to take root and it's going to impact lives in Judea, or sorry, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the power that Jesus promises is not military power or political pressure or oratorical eloquence. It's an empowerment from the Holy Spirit to speak boldly for Jesus, to work miracles that will affirm the message of the kingdom. And we saw that in the Gospels with Jesus in his ministry. He came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and he performed miracles that were there to authenticate the truthfulness of the message. They weren't there in and of themselves. They were there to authenticate the primary focus, which was the gospel that he came to preach. And now when the apostles receive this power, they will work miracles that will, again, authenticate the message of the kingdom. So you will receive power. Secondly, you will be my witnesses. And what we have here is the witness of the apostles. This word is important and significant. To be a witness means that you've seen something firsthand or you've heard something firsthand and you give account of what you have seen. So, for example, if today you leave here and you're driving down the street and you stop at a, you know, at a light and there's a car that speeds through the red light and there's an accident, you have seen, you have heard, and you are a witness to what has taken place. And you can be brought into a court of law to give testimony to what you have seen, what you have heard. Or if you happen to be driving down the road and you observe someone stealing boxes from someone's doorstep, you're able to identify who the person is. It's a white guy. He had a hoodie on. He had a beard. His hoodie was white. His tennis shoes were yellow. You have facts. You have data. This is what you've seen. This is what you observe. You're brought into a courtroom session. You are a witness to what you have seen. So, friends, when, when Jesus is saying, you will be my witnesses, here's the reality. They already are witnesses. It, this witness is not something that they're necessarily doing so much as it is what they've already experienced, what they've already seen. So when the apostles are going to place to place and they're talking about the good news of the gospel, they are ones who have eyewitness account. They heard, they saw, they touched, they were present, they ate with Jesus. They are witnesses of his life, of his death, of his burial, of his resurrection. They're not telling something they've heard. They're telling what they personally have seen. It's a legal word in that sense, friends. So as eyewitnesses to the life and death and resurrection of Christ, they are to testify to what they've seen and heard about Jesus. And so they, they, they begin in Jerusalem, and we see as they, as they are witnesses now to what has happened with Christ, the gospel goes forward. Here's one example of what I'm talking about. Acts chapter 10, verses 39 through 40. Here's what Peter says. He says, and we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, 
They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him appear. He's saying, we're not just, in a sense, witnesses of some story. We actually saw these events take place. Okay? Now, that's the witness of the apostles. Now, let's think about the witness of the church. We've been focusing on the apostolic witness, but the church is called to continue the spread of this good news. Every generation of Christians since the apostles has been tasked with the responsibility to bear witness. But, and this is important, it is important for us to understand that the witness we give is to point to the witness of the apostles who testify to the reality of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We might give our story of how Christ brought us to him, our coming to faith, but ultimately, when we're talking about the witness that the apostles are preaching, the witness of the gospel, we're pointing to the apostles' witness. Because you and I weren't there when Christ was hung on the cross. You and I weren't there when he rose from the tomb. You and I were not there when he spoke the things that he spoke. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, and verses 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You get what he's saying here. There's Christ and there's this foundation of the apostles. We are always appealing to our understanding of the gospel through the the testimony, the witness of the apostles. So when someone says to you, well, I don't believe what you're saying, you're saying, well, I'm only telling you what they're saying (laughs) because they're the ones that saw it. They're the ones that were there. And this historical record has been, has been proved to be accurate over and over and over again. This is the testimony of the apostles, and I affirm that testimony because this is what Christ has done for me. And friends, it's, it's a side note. The fact that they are called witnesses here means that the office of apostle died out with those who witnessed Christ. If you have not witnessed Christ, you are not an apostle, by definition. You had to have been someone who witnessed Christ in order to be considered as an apostle. We'll see that in the next chapter or in the next section. So if someone self-identifies as an apostle today, you might want to ask them if they were present when Christ died and was buried and rose again, because they weren't. Right? Now, I'm just saying that to be careful. We want to be particular here because some people will have, oh, I'm a more authority because I'm an apostle. Well, you weren't there when Christ died. What you're doing is giving testimony to what the apostles said. So you will receive power. You will be my witnesses. And I'm going to throw in a third thing here because it comes from the greater text in verse 11. We find the angels giving the disciples and apostles Uh, or apostles, a gentle rebuke when they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? In other words, Jesus has given you a commission. Stop dilly-dallying and go serve your king. (laughs) Now, friends, as we come to this concluding thoughts, I, I want us to kind of wrestle with a number of things here. I have three, three points. Just settle with them, if you would, as I, as I kind of seek to, to challenge myself and us. So we're challenged here to do three things. Number one, to clearly recognize our kingdom mission. And I'm being careful and I'm being particular, but there's a reason for it. The apostles were given a commission to take the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, and and, and Samaria, and and to the end of the earth. But that is not our commission. You say, what are you saying, Pastor Rod? No, we are the end of the earth. And our commission 
is to continue what the apostles started in Jerusalem. Hear what I'm saying there? The apostles started in Jerusalem. It went to Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. We are at the end of the earth. So this commission is not our commission in the sense of we got to find our Jerusalem and our Judea and Samaria. No, we are the extent of that commission and we carry it on. Right? So by, by, by definition, the ministry that we are doing, the witnessing that we are doing is by definition end of the earth ministry. That would make a good movie, wouldn't it? End of the earth ministry. Now, having said that, I don't think it's inappropriate to look at the church and missions through the lens of Acts 1-8 and to try and identify some basic regions. Jerusalem, people like us, Judea and Samaria, people near us and somewhat like us, end of the earth, people far from us and unlike us. There's, there's a, I think it's helpful, but just don't say, God has clearly given us this vision that we are Jerusalem, we've got to look to our Judea and Samaria. No, no, we are just to continue end of the earth ministry. All right? Now, we might want to say there's room for balance. We are to seek to do end-of-the-earth ministry with an Acts 1-8 paradigm. Okay? It's okay. But I want to make sure that we are rooted in what is being said. Because here's the thing. What Christ says to the apostles doesn't necessarily mean it's true for us. And that's one of the things that we need to be careful about as we study through this book of Acts. Secondly, Carefully rethink our kingdom mission. The apostles came to Jesus what they thought was a good question, but a question that was filled with assumptions as they brought in their new walk with Christ. What assumptions do you tend to bring into God's kingdom mission for the church or even for your own personal life? Here's just three that I thought of. Is the church's mission to right every wrong in the world? I mean, is that our job? Is just to make a list of all the things that are going wrong in the world, and we're going to go out there and we're going to charge. Secondly, is it is the church's mission to preserve your culture, your family, and your nation? Third, is it to make your journey to heaven as comfortable as possible? Now, see, a lot of those things come from our culture come from our Christian culture, not necessarily from biblical truth. So let's use our church's mission statement as a tool to evaluate or rethink our kingdom mission. Here's our mission statement. We exist to glorify God by building a community of believers who are actively committed to knowing, applying, and proclaiming the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's think about being committed to knowing We're called to keep growing in our knowledge of God and of Christ and of his word and of the gospel. See, as witnesses, we need to be sure about what it is that we're testifying. If we're fuzzy witnesses, I mean, in in a legal sense, in a court case, if we're fuzzy witnesses, what does the jury do? I can't use that. So our whole life, is one of growing to, 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 to develop and to articulate and to, to be strong in our knowledge of who God is, who Christ is, what he has done, what the gospel actually is. So we're committed to growing in our knowledge. That's knowing. Secondly, committed to applying. These apostles went out not simply because they had facts about an event that took place with a person, These apostles went out because they were personally affected, radically changed by Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So it wasn't simply communicating, well, this is what happened in Jerusalem to to Jesus. Yeah, you can take it or leave it or whatever. Yeah, you know. No, no. They're saying, this is the Jesus who changed my life. And he did it by virtue of what he taught, what he said, what he did, where he went, how he died, how he rose again, how he ascended into heaven. I've seen him, I know him, and he's changed me. They applied what they knew. 
Friends, it's one thing to know the facts about the gospel. It's another thing to be radically changed by the facts of the gospel. Third, we need to be committed to proclaiming. You know, in Christian world today, it's become really popular to say, I'm just going to go out and live my life before other believers. Um, we're, to, we're, we're called here to testify. Now, again, just think of this in terms of what it means to be a witness. You are a witness to a robbery, people taking boxes from a porch, and you have, you, you know what the person looks like, what they were wearing, all that kind of stuff. And so you're brought into the witness stand, and the lawyer comes and says, now please, Mr. Phillips, would you, would you tell us what you have seen? And you smile, and you're kind in your demeanor, but you don't open your mouth. Your kindness and your demeanor does not communicate what you have witnessed. You see, your kindness, your demeanor, how you behave in the world is important. We're told that that is, that is important. It is the place setting, so to speak, for the gospel. But if someone is coming to a place setting anticipating food, but no food is offered, what's the point of the place setting? We need to have the place setting, and we need to have the food of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friends, both are important. We need to learn and to grow in our ability to articulate the witness of the gospel. What good is a place setting if it is not filled with food? The last thing here is this. Clearly recognize your kingdom mission. Just know where you are in that. Carefully rethink that as we look through our mission statement. Third, big word here, it had to be a C. Conscientiously rekindle our kingdom mission. Having, Having looked at all this, how does this affect us? What now becomes our priority? What do we need to do? What do we need to change? How can we reorient things? How can we make sure that we're where God wants us to be? So this is a call then for us to have a fresh commitment to the local church. In our attendance, in our fellowship, in our growing, in our serving, in our participation, in our giving, in our hospitality. You can go on. We don't gather as a church because it's a nice thing to do. It's a nice social club. No, we gather as a church because we are all believers called out together to gather as one and to unite together under the the, the authority of Christ, under the leadership of elders to carry out the ministry for one another, but also then to be a light in the world in a variety of different ways. God works his will through the local church. Friends, I mean, just think about it. If if the apostles were to go into Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, sharing the gospel, and no church is established, it wouldn't make sense. And today, people are like, well, I really don't need the church. I'm a Christian, but I don't need the church. Hogwash! You're denying what Christ says. You're denying the very apostles who were the witnesses to Christ. The church is what you need. And I would just plead with you, rekindle your passion for the local church. I'm not pointing at anyone in particular. I'm not upset with anyone. I'm just saying that what flows out of this is a a reminder that Christ is at work and he is at work through that which he has established, and that is his church. So friends, the book of Acts is going to push us to rethink what we're doing and why. And that's a good and healthy challenge for us all. Lord, help us today. 
to allow this text to have its way with us. Lord, make it clear if we are bringing into our church context assumptions and ways of thinking that really come from outside of the church that have somewhat settled in the modern-day church that are not what you desire. Give us wisdom, Lord, to see those things. Help us, Lord, to see that we are to do ministry at the ends of the earth, that you've called us to do that. Lord, help us to be careful, help us to be effective, help us to be diligent. But Lord, may we never lose sight of the fact that in spite of the stuff that is happening in this world, your church is still on the move. You are at work, and we are the vehicles through which you desire to work. Lord, help us. Help us to embrace this mission to be witnesses of the witnesses who had first-hand experience of what they saw. And Lord, as we have been convinced of your gospel, as we have been changed because of your gospel, help us, Lord, then to open our mouths, not just live our lives, but open our mouths as we have the opportunity, Lord, sometimes maybe as we are seeking to, uh, to create the opportunity, Lord, so that we can testify of your faithfulness and the goodness that we have because you are our Lord and Savior. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.